Hey, welcome back to Season 2 of Beyond Walls, the podcast from Theatre Pass Mirai. It's Season 2 of the podcast, but it's actually Season 49 of Theatre Pass Mirai. Or 48, depends on how you want to look at it. Founded in 1968, so well on our way to 50 years. Welcome to the 1617 season at Theatre Pass Mirai. Today, we're going to talk about the first play in our season, and it's called Brave New World. Now, that name sounds familiar. That's because, indeed, it is based on the book Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Or maybe you're an Iron Maiden fan, in which case, I salute you. Brave New World is a production by Litmus Theatre and Cabin, with the generous support of Theatre Pass Mirai. It's playing down at TPM just until October 13th. Today we're going to take you in to listen to an Egg Rolls with Andy event, with Andy McKim, Artistic Director of Theatre Pass Mirai, and Alan Weiss. I'll tell you a little bit more, but we may as well just listen in, so let's get to it. Yeah. Alan Weiss, Thank you. who's an associate professor of English and humanities at York University, and has more than a passing acquaintance with Brave New World and other dystopic works. That's right. Yeah. Um, I wondered if we could start, uh, if you have had a chance to take your breath, a with, <laughs> yeah, with a quick overview of Aldous Huxley. Uh, as both a writer and a citizen, yep. who he was, with an eye to pointing out why his life and his interests might have led him to a brave new world. Well, he was interested in social issues generally, and if you are familiar with any of his other works, you'll see that it, they aren't science fiction, but they also involve society and they're satirical in many ways. And what he tries to do is to look at the problems that people have associating with each other in a society, the relationship between the individual and society. And one of the preoccupations of that period was overpopulation. And that was one of the inspirations for Brave New World. He was looking for, in some ways, a solution to the problem of overpopulation. But he was also speculating about what the solution might be to other people. And, and, and the ones that he was really afraid of. And the one that he was really afraid of had to do with the rise of what you call Fordism, which is trying to do everything in the most efficient way possible using a production line or assembly line. What if this were applied to people? And Brave New World is his speculation, what if somebody tried to solve the overpopulation problem by controlling the production of people the way they control the production of cars. The novel is full of little jokes about Henry Ford. He becomes their new god. They worship him. Uh, whenever, for example, there would be a reference to a cross in the Christian sense, he replaced it with a T for the Model T. Uh, and this was his way of making fun of the whole idea, but also expressing some fear about it. Yeah. And uh, when he's looking at Ford, yeah. At what point are we in the history of assembly line uh, industrial production of goods? And to what extent 
is he choosing Ford because it's North America and more brave new world than his own country, England? Yeah. Um, Henry Ford became, during the 1920s, the champion, the leading figure in this whole business of trying to produce things uh, efficiently. And he wasn't the first one to come up with this idea. It was a guy named Taylor. Mm. And it was known as Taylorism for quite a while. But when Ford, in the US, applied Taylorism to the production of cars, then he became the leading figure, the, 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 the one that everybody associated with that kind of approach to industrial production, and then perhaps beyond. Yeah. yeah. So it was mainly the 1920s. And by the time you get to the 30s, when Brave New World was published, I, it had been pretty much established that he was the guy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, can you talk to us about how <laughs> uh, Brave New World was received critically and uh, by the public at the time? I think it was generally received well. Uh, but it really took off as a text, I think, a little later on, especially with the publication of 1984. And when that was published in 1949, 1984 became the ur-text, the, 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 the focal text for dystopian literature. And then people started to look back and associate um, the whole genre um, with what was happening in the modern world and how science fiction writers can uh, use the, the devices of science fiction, the ideas of science fiction, in order to explore things that were really seriously going on in the modern world uh, involving control, control by government, control by industry. It wasn't anything new. Uh, 1984 was itself inspired by a Russian novel that came out in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think it really became a significant text, Brave New World, when it was put into this burgeoning tradition of dystopian literature. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I realized as I was speaking to someone in our box office uh, about our conversation this evening that uh, I was born in 52. So oh, yeah. I'm closer in birth to the, begin the, the publication of this novel than I am to my staff. <laughs> and that, that just brought me up short, wondering about the difference through generations of becoming acquainted for the first time with this book. Because most yeah. of us become acquainted with the book, the concepts, the challenges that the book presents, when we're either side of 20, and we've read it in school or in university. Yes, that's right. So can you give us, if it's possible, some sort of tour through the generations as you've been teaching the book yeah. to people, I'm presuming for 10 years or more? I think I first taught it in 1990. Okay, so then we have a good sample here of 25 years. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so can you take us through those 25 years and how people have responded to the work and what parts of it have jumped out at them the most or they've been engaged with the most and yeah. what parts you've been interested in trying to make them sensitive to? Well, I don't know that they're still doing the book in high school anymore. Mm. I, I sometimes ask classes if they've read the book before and many people haven't. Mm. They, they sometimes read it on their own, but I don't think it's been a staple of high school teaching to the same extent that it was when we were going through high school. 
everybody had either that or 1984, and you certainly had something like Animal Farm or um, Lord of the Flies, something like that. Um, what has happened is that with the push to incorporate Canadian literature into the high schools, it's been largely replaced as your classic dystopian text by The Handmaid's Tale. Right. And they have more likely than any other book read The Handmaid's Tale when it comes to dystopian literature. And it's interesting to note that because The Handmaid's Tale is probably the last big authoritarian mm -hmm. dystopia. Mm -hmm. When you get to the 1980s, you're seeing a different kind of dystopia arise. And that's the anarchic dystopia that you usually get with post-apocalyptic stories, mm -hmm. with stories about, uh, for, for example, cyberpunk. Mm -hmm. The idea that the government will decline in power and be replaced by corporations. And then you have science fiction that portrays dystopias as places where you're just barely surviving, as opposed to Brave New World where you're happy and joyous and all your needs are met. You're barely surviving in the midst of all this gang warfare between multinational corporations. And so you were seeing a shift in what dystopian literature became around the time that The Handmaid's Tale came out. And that's why you still see authoritarian dystopias like 1984 and Fahrenheit 451 in the old days, um, but not as many. And it got generally replaced by that post-apocalyptic, cyberpunkish, something or other anarchic dystopia. Right. You remind me, although this is not directly connected, with On the Beach, which had a yes. huge impact on me and must be in, uh, in that bumper area between, uh, well, as we enter the concept of post-apocalyptic, because that On the Beach must be one of the early post-apocalyptic. It was 1959, I believe, 1959, 1960. Yeah. Uh, it was part of a different line. Yeah. It was part of the post-nuclear apocalypse line. And it's, it's considered to be part of an of a even subgroup of that, the cozy catastrophe, because all these people are perfectly civilized and they're all just, just very, very quiet and accepting because they have no choice. Right. I wanted to pick up on something that you were talking about, about authoritarian yep. rule, uh, because um, there is a book that I've read that I really enjoy. It was, it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Oh, yes. Uh, and it's talking about how the modern world is being dumbed down by an avoidance of serious discussion and a rise of the irrelevant but pleasurable banter in our public discourse. Yep. The author, Neil, Neil Postman, yep. ironically wrote the book around 1984. <laughs> and in the foreword to his book, he talks about the books 1984 and Brave New World. And this is what he wrote. Orwell fe feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Mm -hmm. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. Mm -hmm. So what do you think of that analysis? It's absolutely, on his part. yeah. In fact, uh, in 1957, Huxley wrote a, a, a longish essay called Brave New World Revisited. And he compared his novel to 1984. And he said, mine is more plausible because if you inflict pain, chances are somebody's going to react not too well to it. 
and, and things are going to change over time, so a regime cannot withstand all that change, all that evolution. But if you offer people pleasure, if instead of offering them pain if they, if they disobey, you offer them pleasure if they obey, you're more likely to get people to agree. And there's one thing, one point that I have made uh, in other talks and that I think is really important to note. These dystopias, generally speaking, are not imposed from above. They are sought from below. The people are in the midst of a crisis and they want somebody to make everything okay. And they're perfectly willing to give up their rights and freedoms for the sake of happiness and security. And all of these regimes in these dystopias would not be able to survive if it, were, if it weren't for the complicity of the people. And you can find many historical analogs to that. You can find the Patriot Act. You can find uh, Bill C-51 and its early popularity. There's a crisis. We've got this danger, whether it's a war, terrorism, environmental catastrophe. If, a, if somebody comes along and says, we will make things happy for you, and we will make things secure for you, and we will provide you with everything you need. All you have to do is give us our freedom. The people will do it. They were both kind of warning about that, but they had different approaches to the sort of societies that would, would be imposed, sort of. And I think Postman is right that we're kind of doing that. We would rather gaze at a, at a dumb TV screen and watch something stupid than really deal with the problems in the world. And it's a great way to control people. Just give them their bread and circuses and add some more circuits. And do you think there's a way in which those of us who are aware of this happening are still, in spite of that, succumbing to the charms <laughs> of avoidance of the difficult and the uncomfortable and embracing the happy and the comfortable? I think we... we we all do that to some extent, and if you're tired, you come home from work, and you don't want to watch something disturbing on TV, you just want to veg out in front of an action movie or something similar to that. Mm -hmm. uh, we do it all the time. It's, it's being made more difficult for us to really get something, to deal with things that are thoughtful and difficult. Um, I, 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 and, uh, you know, I, I hear people say, for example, as I heard the other night, the vice presidential debate was boring. Well, you want entertainment, even in politics? Look at what it can lead to. And I think you know who I'm talking about. It well, it's hard to not yeah. always reference what's going on. Exactly, and, and this is the replacement of thoughtful politics by, uh, by, by reality TV. And the line that I would use if I were down there is, this is reality, this is not reality TV. Uh, and but yet people want the entertainment it's fun and I've seen far too much of that attitude where as long as it's fun it's okay well sometimes you have to get serious and we have no right to be smug because we did the same thing in 2010 with our mayors indeed um, we'll need to conclude shortly but uh, to introduce another topic of discussion and that's social stratification yes it seems the book is taking social stratification head on yeah. and enshrining it, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, what does the book's uh, uh, um, look at str social stratification tell us about our own world? Anything? 
Well, there, there is and always has been social stratification. What Brave New World portrays is making you like it. They are constantly telling the people, uh, you are in this particular level of society, alphabet, gamma, delta, epsilon. Not only are you there, but you enjoy being there and you wouldn't want to be anything else. And I think there are times when people really get upset about being down here and not being up there or having somebody up there telling them what to do, the anti-elite sort of rhetoric that we've heard in recent years. They kind of misidentify the, the elite that's really important as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but then there are other times when you say, yeah, he's entitled to be up there because he, what, was born rich, got rich by himself, got rich by ripping off other people. But somehow or other, yeah, he's entitled to be up there. And one day I can be there. And what, what society tries to do, at least our society, Western society tries to do, is to convince you that you have just as much chance to get up there as anybody else, which is a myth. Uh, but it's, it's not quite making you happy where you are, but making you happy that you're not there yet. Well, it's fair to say that the reason we're not there yet is because we weren't good enough. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the way that we've organized our society. That's is that, right. Is that fair? Yeah, so I think that's fair. To that extent, we are all supporting the yeah. system that we're sitting within. That's right, because that we, do, we do tend to... Uh, to believe that, yes, if we haven't gotten up there, it's because it's our own fault, mm -hmm. rather than that the system might be arranged so that it's very difficult to get up there. Which increases our antagonism towards those who would propose otherwise. Yeah. Just in conclusion, and thinking of this evening and folks going to see Brave New World tonight, is there some particular strand of the work that may not be so self-evident from for those of us who've read the book uh, that you might want to turn people's attention to as they watch the show tonight something that uh, they might follow that's one of the other strands that are uh, of interest in this book in this story and we're, we'll hope that it's actually existing in the production well, that's the thing I don't know yeah. what you've got well there. when you when you tell there's, like one, there's one really interesting strand that I Nobody told us about it when we studied the book. I think it was in high school. I'm pretty sure it was in high school. And that has to do with John Savage. Mm -hmm. the, the novel is about systems of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people tend to be cap captured into it, put into it, never get out of it, and they are brainwashed to like it or to operate according to a set of defined rules. And John Savage is often seen by people as the rebel, as the guy who is outside the system, who is fighting the system. But you, clear, you, you, you start to realize as you look at the book for the eighth or ninth time, he's also brainwashed. But he's brainwashed by Shakespeare. And he's trying to turn the entire world into one big Shakespeare play. And when he starts calling Lenina strumpet or some such, that is there. It's there? Yes. He is channeling Shakespeare, but that's no more reality. That is just as much an imposed, brainwashed way of looking at the world as the rest of the society. And it's fair to say that, I, I believe, correct me, that Aldous Huxley 
did not want us to identify exclusively with one or the other social culture. He, he wanted us to be challenged uh, going either way. Yes. And, and John Savage, his society is freer. And I think that if Huxley were forced to choose, he would choose the freer society. Mm -hmm. But John Savage has a bit of a martyr complex. Mm -hmm. Right from the beginning of the novel, he loves whipping himself or yeah. being whipped. Yes. And so he loses a lot of his credibility through the course of the novel. Mm -hmm. And that's a strand that sometimes people forget. I certainly never thought of it when I was a kid reading the book and thinking about it. I thought, he's the hero and poor bastard. He was destroyed by the system. Well, he was pre-destroyed by his own form of brainwashing. Great to talk for a minute with you, you about this work and about uh, all of its uh, contemporary resonance. Thank so you. thank you very much. And uh, if we can give, give you a hand of applause, Alan. Thank you. That was Andy McKim in conversation with Alan Wise at Egg Rolls with Andy at Theatre Pass Mirai. Egg Rolls with Andy is sponsored by The Epicure. They're fantastic. Go there all the time. Brave New World is produced by Litmus Theater and Cabin with the support of Theater Pass Mirai. It's directed and adapted by Matthew Thomas Walker from the book by Aldous Huxley. The set and lighting designs by Patrick Lavender. Costume design by Lindsay Woods. Sound design by Nick Storing. Dramaturgy by Claire Wyveen, with consulting dramaturgy by Andy McKinn. It's stage managed by Sarah O'Brien. Brave New World plays just until October 16th. So if I were you, I would do my best to come check it out. After all, you should never put off till tomorrow the fun that you can have today. Now that makes more sense if you've seen the show uh, or read the book, but you do have time to do both. It plays just till Sunday. The music you're listening to is The Overture for L. It's composed by Lion Smith. I'm Jib Paris Ram. I'm the associate artistic producer at Theatre Pass Mariah. Thank you for downloading the podcast, streaming the podcast, however it is you're accessing the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you ever want to give us one of those likes or shares or otherwise social media activities, it actually really helps us a lot. But the most important thing is to come down to the theater and feel like you're part of the community because you are, and that's why we do it. Until next time.